one of the things that parents are often trying to teach their children is how to be a good loser. Maybe one of the biggest reasons that we get them involved in sports, right? We, we, we go, we take them to the game, it's a terrible loss, and we want to teach them, you know, don't get mad at your teammates, don't blame the refs, don't give up. You need to learn to be a good loser. But almost as important, perhaps more important in some ways, is how to be a good winner. How to be magnanimous in victory. College and pro sports teams are no help in this area, right? They seem to be full of bad winners. Every even minor accomplishment on a football or baseball field is followed by an instantaneous and ludicrous pantomime of some kind, right? A guy can't get a double without making a signal back to the dugout. No first down is achieved without the salute, right, from the ref. Every accomplishment is like this. And if you make a trip to your local Little League field or Pee Wee football field, you see that it's trickled down, right? The kids are watching, and they're doing the exact same thing. It's easy to be a bad winner. Well, what kind of winner are you? Not many of us have opportunity in adulthood to hit home runs or to score touchdowns, but every now and then in life we experience little victories. For example, how do you act when you're proven right in a disagreement, when you've won an argument? Do you have the I told you so's armed and ready to go? Many of our trivial arguments can be settled with a quick Google search, so most of us, I hope, are not celebrating those, at least not seriously. But what about when things are more serious, a serious disagreement? Can you imagine how you would act if you were having a serious theological disagreement with other Christians and you received a letter from God saying you were right? That would feel pretty good. Be pretty affirming about your theological prowess, wouldn't it? But what would you do with that information? How would you treat the people who disagreed with you? You know, in a serious theological disagreement, tensions can run high. You can get very emotionally involved. In a situation like that, if God had spoken and said you were on the right side, it would be very tempting to make your opponents pay for every slight, every time they questioned your judgment. You'd want them to own it, perhaps. The letter to the Galatians was written to churches that were in the midst of huge theological disagreement over the most important matters. Huge stakes were here. The gospel itself. Can you imagine what it might have been like for those who had stuck with Paul? They'd heard the gospel from him and they never wavered. What was it like for them sitting in that first gathering where the letter to the Galatians was read aloud? To hear again and again Paul affirming they're right. No one's justified by works. I said that. You know, the law doesn't save. I said that. I told that guy the other day, the law doesn't save. We're free in Christ from the condemnation of the law. Yes, yes, yes. Even as they heard this good news, though, they're immediately presented with a dilemma. They were free in Christ, but how should they use that freedom? When the letter had been read and church was over, what should they say? to the brother or sister they had just been arguing with about before church started? What should they say to those who'd followed after the false teachers? 
Paul had said that he wished the troubling teachers would emasculate themselves. Should the Galatian Christians treat their brothers and sisters with the same language? With those questions in mind, let's read our text. This morning we're just looking at three verses, Galatians 5, 13 through 15. You can find this in the Bibles provided on page 975. Listen to God's word from Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word. This morning we're going to walk through these three verses and use two questions to organize our time. First question, what is freedom? And second, what is freedom for? What is freedom and what is freedom for? So let's look at this first question. What is freedom? Very simply, the freedom that Paul speaks about in verse 13 is one of the great blessings of the gospel. It is gospel freedom purchased by Christ's death and resurrection. When we try to define freedom, then, we need to use Paul's own definition and look at how Paul uses freedom in the letter. And the first place he uses freedom is in Galatians chapter 2. In that chapter, Paul was recounting his visit to Jerusalem. And he'd gone there to meet with the leaders of Jerusalem church. At that that meeting, he hoped to verify that he and the Jerusalem leaders preached the same gospel. And the meeting was a success. Paul tells how the leaders recognized that God had entrusted Paul with a ministry to the Gentiles, just as he had entrusted Peter with a ministry to the Jews. They extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. And they left the meeting having sealed their friendship and their cooperation in preaching the gospel. So overall, it's a success, but there is one issue that he notes about the meeting. Paul says that some false brothers slipped into the meeting. They were brought in by somebody. He says, yeah, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Note that these false brothers were trying to undermine the freedom in Christ that Paul and his companions had. The the us there includes Paul and Barnabas and a a Greek Christian named Titus. And his, his Greek status is notable because he's a Gentile, not a Jew. And Paul had just said, even Titus, who was a Greek, he wasn't asked to be circumcised by the Jerusalem leaders. It's a verification that Paul and the Jerusalem leaders were on the same side of these, of these big gospel issues. And that they were on the same side that, that Christians don't have to observe the law in order to be saved. Jew or Gentile, they don't have to observe the old covenant law. Paul is saying, look, we all agree that the gospel came and changed everything. It brought a freedom to Christians from the, from the penalty and power of the law. And Paul says that this freedom that he strove to protect, it was bound up with the truth of the gospel itself. He says that if he had submitted to these false teachers, these false brothers that were brought in, if he had submitted to them, he would have failed to preserve the truth of the gospel. But he didn't submit 
And so he says he preserved the truth of the gospel for the Galatians. Again, this freedom is a specific kind of freedom. It's not, it's not American freedom that we talk about in the American Constitution or the Bill of Rights. It's the freedom that Christ purchased for his people through his work on the cross. We're talking about a, a spiritual freedom that Christians have because Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. We can get a little more specific and say this freedom is a freedom from salvation by law-keeping. The slavery that these false brothers wanted to impose, again, was this requirement that even Gentiles needed to live like Jews in order to be saved. Paul uses circumcision here, but that's just the presenting issue. It's kind of a symbolic term for the whole Mosaic covenant. The truth of the gospel says that Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law, and he bore the curse of the law that lawbreakers deserve. And by doing this, Christ fulfilled the law. Christ brought the law to its end, and all those who trust in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are freed from slavery to the law. They're freed from the curse of the law. They're free. So the big implication here is that the old covenant, the law of Moses, no longer defines how a sinner can come to God. Now that Christ has come, Jesus defines the terms by which sinners can come to God. We come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, our sins are forgiven. By faith in Christ, we have peace and fellowship with the one who made us. By faith in Christ, we're free from sin's curse and power. That's the freedom Paul is talking about. This is the freedom that Paul boldly fought to preserve there when he went to Jerusalem. And it's the freedom he's been arguing for in this book of Galatians. Talking about the law and circumcision and the old covenant may sound like we're talking about a lot of religious trivia. But we need to see that freedom in Christ is not about minutia of the Old Testament. The reality of this freedom is profoundly good news for all people because it means that sinners who trust in Christ are no longer in slavery to our sin. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. I heard a preacher recently say if if Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us, that must mean that we were not free. We had to be ransomed. We needed to be freed from the bondage to sin. And this is what the gospel gets for us. In an ultimate sense, this freedom means we are not subject to any earthly power. We're so free, we can hardly imagine it. Paul will say that even death's dominion over us has been broken. Christians are so free that we become mockers of death. So we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? This is one place where it's okay to be a bad winner. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over sin and death. We are free. Free from condemnation, free from the power of sin, free from the reign of death. This is the freedom Christ gives to his people. It's one of the major blessings of the gospel. It belongs on the Mount Rushmore of gospel blessings. 
eternal life, forgiveness of sins, freedom from sin's power. We have the joy as Christians of living as free people. Do you know this freedom? Perhaps as you've come into this building today, the greatest sense you have of your life is that you're enslaved. You feel enslaved to bad habits. You're enslaved to your fears. One thing the gospel tells you is that your feelings are pointing you to something true, perhaps. The gospel actually has some bad news for you, though. It says that things are worse than you fear. You're not just enslaved to bad habits. You're enslaved to rebelling against your good and merciful creator. You're enslaved to sin and death. Death is impending, but even more than death, eternal death, hell. One day you'll die and face your creator as judge. That's the bad news, but the good news is that God himself has provided a way for enslaved people to be free. The gospel promises freedom in Christ. Jesus came to free people like you and me. Jesus came and allowed himself to be captured by evil men and to be put to death, to go into the prison of death himself, even though he had no sin of his own. He went down to that prison of death, but then he led a jailbreak. He rose from the dead and he sets the captives free by his resurrection. And by faith in him, you can be free. That's the good news of the gospel. If you trust that Jesus died in your place, you can be free from the penalty of your sin and the power of your sin. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is a promise that Jesus makes to those who believe. Would you receive this promise? Would you believe? Today is the day to be set free from the power of sin and death. You can be set free by trusting in Christ. For Christians, we should live in this freedom every day. And this freedom has many facets to it. We can talk about how we're freed from the Old Covenant law and we're freed from someone else's man-made traditions or opinions. So as I live as a Christian, I am not bound by your preferences and and you're not bound by mine. You don't have to like the same Christian music or non-Christian music that I like and vice versa. Now, there may may be reasons, Paul will tell us, out of love and consideration for each other, that we bind ourselves, that we limit our freedoms, But we also recognize there's a way we can say with Paul, all things are lawful for me in Christ. Perhaps the most practical and important application of freedom for Christians is to recognize that we are free from the power of sin. And we recognize sin is still a powerful force within our lives, but it's no longer a totally enslaving force. So we speak of sin indwelling us, We know that our hearts still produce evil thoughts and evil words come out of our mouths. We still commit sin, but sin does not reign over us because of what Jesus has done and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, we are now able to truly obey God's commands. 
This obedience is not perfect obedience, but true obedience. Sin no longer reigns. So brothers and sisters, are you a defeatist when it comes to your sin? Do you recognize the freedom you have in Christ? You've died to sin by faith in him. You are alive to God, raised with him. The Spirit enables you to fight sin. Are you fighting? It's easy to get discouraged by our sin and to give up. We may feel like we're making no progress in self-control or in loving that difficult person in our lives. But even your discouragement about your progress can be an encouragement. If you are discontent in your fight against sin, have you considered where that discontentment comes from? It could come from a bad place, some perfectionist standard, but it may come from the Lord himself, who's given you a holy discontentment. Your discontentment may be a spark that's been thrown off by the fire of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is, see, is pleased to see that spark be fanned into a flame. So pray for the Lord to grow you and your hatred of sin. Pray for your desires for Christ's ways to grow stronger than your desires for sin. And even if prayer is hard or you don't know how to pray, listen to this encouraging word from the great Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs. God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. These desires cry louder in his ears than your sins. Your desires for holiness cry louder in God's ears than your sins. Thank God he picks sense out of our confused prayers. So you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Christ purchased this freedom at the cost of his own life. And since you are Christ's, live as free people. What does Paul mean by freedom? He means gospel freedom. Freedom from the law, freedom from the power of sin that Jesus purchased. And yet, even in saying this, we've barely scratched the surface of all the ways we could talk about freedom in Galatians. We could say that this freedom is created by the gracious promises of God, which we receive by faith in Christ. We could say this freedom is freedom secured by the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom God has poured out into our hearts. We could say that it's the freedom that sons of God enjoy by faith in the Son of God. Our Lord has called us to this great gospel freedom. So that's what freedom is. But what should we do with this freedom? This is our second question. What is freedom for? And we see that Paul divides up his answer into two parts. First, he tells us what our freedom is not for. And then he tells us what it is for. So he says our freedom is not for indulging the flesh. Our freedom is for serving one another in love. So let's look at this first answer to the question, what is freedom for? Freedom is not for indulging in our flesh. So verse 13 again, For you are called the freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom is not an opportunity, or not a license to do whatever you want. Well, this marks an important shift in Paul's message to the Galatians. If for most of the letter, Paul's been warning these Galatian Christians not to follow the legalistic teachers among them. And in that part of the letter, the bulk of what we've covered, he's connected the concept of flesh to the wrong attempt 
to be saved by law-keeping. So to rely on your flesh is to try to earn your way to God by law-keeping. That's what we see in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so here, though, we see Paul using flesh in a related but distinct way. Now he uses the same idea of flesh to warn about a new threat, another way that our flesh can lead us astray. So when we've discovered that we're free in Christ, we may conclude that this means we're free to do whatever we want. So on the one hand, we could say the flesh can lead us into self-reliance. We could indulge the flesh by trying to work our way to God, but we can also indulge the flesh through what we call license, living however we want, licentiousness, living to please ourselves. This is kind of classically what we mean by self-indulgence. And Paul wants to make sure now that we don't swing from one fleshly way of life, legalism, to the other, to license. The commentator Herman Ritterboss observed that the flesh wants freedom to express itself as it will. Christ has not called the believer to such freedom. This is especially important for us to hear today. The historian Carl uh, Truman put it in the title of his book that we live in the age of the rise and triumph of the self. Modern Western culture places an extremely high value on individual self-expression. In other words, our culture's current practice of freedom is the very thing Paul warns against. Our cultural definition of freedom says, if you want to be fully and authentically human, you must express yourself in whatever just comes into your heart. Whatever's in there, let it out. You must give yourself to these deepest longings, and to, to suppress those things, as they would say, is actually harmful for us. The only restriction seems to be as, as long as being yourself doesn't directly injure someone, then, then you can do it, and you should. You should live your truth, and everyone else must accept you. Now, there's a sense in which this kind of self-indulgence is nothing new, right? It's, it's there in the Garden of Eden. When Eve sinned, she saw that the tree was good for fruit. It was desirable, and she ate. So this kind of self-indulgence is at the root of sin. It's the tale as old as time. But what's unique about our culture is that we've worked very hard to take all the stigma away from self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is no longer something to be suppressed for the greater good. Instead, it's a, it's a cause for a pride parade, right? It's celebration. Now, it's, it's easy for us to see why the extreme forms of this self-indulgence are wrong. So we all hopefully see the insanity of a, of a man saying that his true self is a woman even if our culture is blinded by this. We see that clearly, but we have a harder time seeing the ways that we are tempted to live by this extreme version of freedom. There are truisms of this absolute freedom that we've unwittingly taken on board, like the statement, I deserve to be happy. Have you ever found yourself thinking that thought? Have you ever found yourself being tempted to live as you should have to answer to no one. Have you ever yourself found yourself believing that deep down, your choices should be limited by nothing? Maybe we might make a concession to limit our freedom for the sake of our immediate family or for the sake of our, our pocketbook to keep our job. So I'll, I'll curb my freedom for that. That's useful. But that's as far as it goes. Life in our modern world tells us to live as anonymous, 
individualistic, free agents, and we're happy to go along with that message. So we especially need to hear Paul when he tells us not to use our freedom as an occasion for the flesh. We can't allow ourselves to confuse Christian freedom with our culture's view of freedom. Christ did not free us from sin slavery so that we would live as slaves to sinful desires. So there's this general warning about self-indulgence, and we could apply it in a bunch of different ways, but we should notice in the text that Paul has his own application that he's concerned about. He's concerned about indulging the flesh, because if Christians indulge their flesh, it will lead to the destruction of the church. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This theme continues in the passage we'll look at next week when Paul lists the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. He includes enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and envy. So among this list of bad things, there's this, this sublist of things that destroy community. Enmity, dissensions, rivalries. Paul is especially warning about the effects of self-indulgence on a church. And he wants us to see that living for ourselves is like our church drinking poison. It will destroy us. Remember back to the illustration we began with then. Imagine again, you're one of these Galatian church members, and you've been faithfully holding on to Paul's teaching. You've been listening to these false teachers, you've been opposing them, you've been grieved because you saw something was off. And eventually you maybe even start avoiding the meetings when these troublers come to town. You just don't even go to church that day. You don't want to lend them any credence by your presence. And you've been telling your brothers and sisters, don't listen to those guys. They're bad for you. Some of of those brothers you've clearly seen have taken the idea to heart that law-keeping can lead to life, and, and you're worried about them. It's weighing on you. You've been upset. You've lost sleep. Tensions have been running high. But again, finally, this service comes. The news has spread. A letter has arrived from the Apostle Paul. He's going to clear this mess up. And you listen, and again, you feel vindicated. Finally. This guy's spoken. He's an apostle, and he's saying it. We're not under law. We're free in Christ. So what do we do? Well, it depends, doesn't it? What if your heart, throughout this process, has grown to be dominated by a love of being right? Maybe you're convinced that you're just a champion for those who are vulnerable, but deep down, you become more focused on winning than winning your brothers and sisters. Or what if you've grown envious of the way that these false teachers are fawned over by some in your church? You would never say it out loud, but you've been dying to get some of that adoration for yourself. You want to be recognized for your theological acumen. If you've been indulging these things, if you've been indulging these works of the flesh, well, now it's time for your victory lap. This letter from Paul means it's time for you to get the pleasure of hearing everybody say, hey, that guy was right. He called it. You're ready to see those church members that disagreed with you outed as fools. You're ready to see them do a, a little groveling before they're back in the church's good graces. But now Paul includes as part of his letter, if you act that way, 
you are biting and devouring and you will be devoured. This is not why Christ set you free. He didn't set you free in order for you to indulge dissensions and rivalries. He set you free to love. Paul wants us to see that one place our distortion of Christian freedom will wreak havoc is in our churches. If we live for ourselves, we will tear apart the church. We will bite and devour, and in turn, we will be consumed. So if we want to see if we have a distorted view of freedom, we can examine our relationships in the church. In Galatia, Paul was especially concerned about fighting. He uses these violent animal images, biting, right? But I think if Paul were to write a letter to contemporary American Christians like us, he'd be more concerned about other kinds of self-indulgence. He would zero in on our independence and our apathy. We're tempted to live like we don't really need the church. We don't really need other Christians to live the Christian life. Or we're suspicious of church authority. So we see things like church discipline as archaic and draconian. If it happened that some doctrinal you know, difference erupted in our church, many of us would have the bigger temptation of just quietly slipping away to the church down the street than to stay and fight in any way. Now, to be fair, there may be good reasons you're suspicious of church authority. You might have seen church authority abused, and, and there are good reasons to leave a church. Not everyone who leaves a church is guilty of apathy or indulging the flesh. But even as we make those qualifications, we need to sit with Paul's warning and ask, am I tempted to use my freedom for my flesh? Am I tempted to justify the ways that I'm living for myself? We should examine ourselves and ask, are the works of the flesh evident in my life? And what do my relationships with others reveal? How are, are, are you using your freedom? Paul is saying freedom in Christ is not permission to indulge every sinful desire. That's not why Christ set you free. So we've defined what freedom in Christ is. We've just said what it's not for. But really the heart of Paul's message is positive. What it is for. We see that at the end of verse 13. We'll read the whole thing now. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. How should we use our freedom? Through love serve one another. Christ set us free from sin and death so we can devote ourselves to serving one another. I've already mentioned this passage is full of some ironic twists in the, the way Paul was using flesh, and now the way he's using flesh here is a little bit different and distinct. But one of the things we note in Galatians is how it's full of contrasts. He contrasts faith and works. He contrasts the spirit and the flesh, slavery and freedom, God's promise and God's law. But here, he's noting that we are free and then calling us back into a kind of slavery. Do you see what I mean? Listen to the way the commentator Doug Moo translates verse 13. You were called to freedom. However, do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, in love, act as slaves toward one another. Now that you've been freed, act as slaves. And he translates it that way because that word for serve is the word for act as slaves. 
And commentators, I mean, the translators always have to decide, should we say it's slave here or servant here? And, and you have to kind of come up with, with ideas. But if you look at the contrast in Galatians, it's been between free and slave, free and slave. And so now we're saying we've been freed by Christ. Serve, act as slaves to one another. Not as slaves to the law, not as slaves to sin, but slaves to one another because of love. This is why Christ came to set us free, so that we would love one another and give ourselves to each other. We can start here to understand this by seeing this trajectory of freedom to slavery or freedom to servitude is Christ's own trajectory. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is God himself. And God is the only absolutely free being. Before his incarnation, Jesus was in heaven as the Son of God, enjoying complete freedom as God. He is free. And he remained free even in his incarnation. But that's a great mystery, isn't it? But what did the Son of God do with his freedom? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, Paul tells us in Philippians. Didn't we see Jesus doing just that in the text we read from John? That's the point of Jesus taking off his outer robe and wrapping himself in a towel. He does the work that the lowest of the low servant would do. He washes his disciples' stinky feet. He took off his outer garments to serve them. And even there, he was pre-picturing how he would serve them on the cross in just a few days' time. He washed the disciples' feet. And he says that he comes to serve, to serve us in love by taking our place on the cross. That's Jesus' trajectory from heaven to the cross, to the grave, for our sake. And to us, his ransomed people, bought by his blood, he gives this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because we are free in Christ, loved by Christ, Now we love each other. We follow his trajectory from freedom to service. And this leads us to another major twist in this letter to the Galatians. Up until this point when Paul's mentioned the law, he's mostly done it negatively. The law represents the attempt to save yourself, to to live by doing. He's told us not to be under the law in the sense of trying to earn our salvation by it. He's told us what the law cannot do. It doesn't justify anyone. But now in verse 14, he teaches us that the the Christian approach to the law is this. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This one word that Paul refers to comes from Leviticus, as Geo told us earlier. It comes from the law there, this long list of laws, but this is the end. And so Paul uses this Leviticus passage, but he doesn't just pick it out like this is one of his greatest hits from Leviticus. He uses it because Jesus uses it. So Jesus says there are two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself said in Matthew twenty-two forty, 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Sounds pretty close to the law being fulfilled, right? So because Jesus has come, because he personally obeyed the whole law perfectly, because he died, the righteous one, the spotless sacrifice, condemned by the law, And because he summed up the law in this one command, Paul says the whole law has been fulfilled. 
The whole system of Moses has been brought to its end. And so when Christians hear this law in Galatians 5.14, we don't hear it as another pathway to justification. Instead, we see a description of what our freedom is like. We see a picture of what the Spirit-filled life looks like. We see a fulfillment of the law. And one of the things we read early on in that Leviticus 19 passage was that, that they, those who profaned the holy things of the Lord were cut off. What's more holy than God's own people? We fulfill the law by loving what God loves, the people that Christ bought with his blood. So the fulfillment of the law doesn't spell the end of good works or the need for good works. Rather, it ushers in the age when God's people are freed and empowered to love in good works. So in this age, by the power of the Spirit, we can love and do good works in a way that God's people never could before. Such that now Jesus can say at the end of our John passage, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is what characterizes us in the age of the law's fulfillment. And this is the pattern of our discipleship. We are freed by Christ and loved by Christ so that we can love like Christ. Because we love him. We give ourselves to serving one another. What does this service look like in practice? There's too many things we can, to mention in a sermon. How many ways can you think of to serve somebody and to love them? Some of us over the last couple of weeks have been trying to serve our sister Regina who moved apartments yesterday. We've loved and served each other already by getting ready for worship and setting up chairs. When Sunday school starts, some of our volunteers will love and serve our children by teaching them. So we love and serve in a variety of ways in the church, and then you could number tons of ways where to love and serve each other in our homes or out in the community. We could go on and on. Our whole lives are being taken up with this work of love and service. But I think we can get more specific in some helpful ways. The great theologian and pastor John Calvin wrote commentaries on most of the books of the Bible. In his commentary on this verse, he says this about serving one another in love. That in serving one another, we shall always have regard to edification, so that we shall not grow wanton, but use the grace of God for his honor and the salvation of our neighbors. I love this profound and simple idea. Use God's grace for God's honor. Once again, we're reminded our freedom is not an excuse for our flesh. We should be ruled in all things by the worship of God. Use God's grace for God's honor. That's the foundation. But notice two ways he says we should serve each other. First he said, we shall always have regard to edification and the salvation of our neighbors. We should always seek to be building up the faith of others and we should seek the salvation of our neighbors. In everything we do as Christians... Our goal is to build up other Christians. In everything we do towards other, other Christians, especially in the church, we're wanting to build up their faith. Now, everything is a big category. Again, we could list a lot of things under that category. But we should realize that the main way we build each other up is by the gospel and God's word. We should preach the gospel to each other. 
We should point each other in our relationships to the scriptures. Consider that this work of pointing people to the gospel is the opposite of biting and devouring one another. When we serve one another like this, we're not interested in scoring points or inflating our own ego. Instead, we want to see our brothers and sisters who may have drifted away into some false teaching return to the joy of their salvation. We want to win them back to their first love. There's nothing more unifying in a group of Christians than God's word and the gospel. And if there is something more unifying in a group of Christians, then something's wrong with that group of Christians. If you're looking for a simple way to start to build up other Christians, I'd encourage you to to simply find someone to meet with, another Christian in the church, and read the Bible together. Start there. There's even a little book I can give you called One-to-One Bible Reading about how to do just this. Just think about how much encouragement would come if you sat down with someone and and you read the sermon text for the following week. That's what Tim and, and Al and I are doing on Tuesday mornings or sometimes Thursday mornings. Just think about Galatians. You could read Galatians with a brother or sister and remind them, remind each other, we're not saved by what we do, but only by what Christ has done. You could remind each other of your freedom that you have in Christ. You could remind each other that you've been adopted by God through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You could teach each other from Galatians that you're to live as a servant today, to serve each other in love. We can warn each other by reading Galatians. Don't believe in those false teachings that are swirling around in your heart or that your sister-in-law is telling you. The big point here is that we should use our freedom to help each other grow in Christ. This is what our freedom is for. Part of God's plan for the spiritual growth and maturity of your sisters and brothers in Christ is you. God intends for all of us to be working together to serve each other with the truth of the gospel. He's freed us from the bondage of sin and death so that we will pour out our lives to make disciples. We should enslave ourselves to this task. We should see it as our obligation to serve each other like this. And I hope you see this isn't some minor point that's buried in this letter to the Galatians. This is the point of Christ's great commission, isn't it? He called his disciples to go and make more disciples. So we serve one another in love by being disciple makers, by being disciple making disciples. Are you seeking to make disciples? Are you seeking in all things to build up others in their faith? Calvin also said that we should use our freedom to seek the salvation of our neighbors. And really, this is exercising the same muscles we were just talking about seeking to love others with the truth of the gospel, but now instead of love Christians with the truth of the gospel, let's love non-Christians with the truth of the gospel. The gospel turns us into free people who are eager to see others freed. The gospel gives us adoption, and it makes us eager to go out and find some spiritual orphans and say, you can be one of God's children too, by faith in the Son of God. We are forgiven sinners eager to tell others who are imprisoned by guilt, you can be forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross. You are part of God's plan to evangelize the world. Our church is part of that plan. God has freed us to serve the lost with the truth of the gospel. And so, 
Are you free in Christ? Christ came to serve by giving his life as a ransom. Have you been ransomed by him? Are you trusting in the gospel? Are you abandoning all worthless attempts to save yourself by your own works? Are you free in Christ? And if you're free, how are you using your freedom? Are you spending it on yourself? It's easy to fall into that. Our sin naturally disposes us to it, and our world encourages us to do it more and more. But that's not why Christ has set you free. Christ gave his life to ransom us so that we will give our lives for each other. And he's promised that even when we lose our lives for his sake and the gospel, we will find them. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Christ has freed us to find our true, true joy in sacrificial love. In love, we act as slaves to each other, to the glory of God. What are you using your freedom for? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us the, the knowledge of our freedom, that we would treasure this great gospel blessing that belongs to us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live by the power of the Spirit, not indulging the works of the flesh, but bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to use our freedom to live as slaves to each other, to be devoted to encouraging each other, to helping each other grow in Jesus, and to sharing the gospel with those who are lost. And we pray that through this, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.